Welcome back to Market Call. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Carter Braxton Worth. Guy Adami, my normal partner here, has the night off. He deserves it, I think. Later, I'm going to be joined by Tina Foreman. She is a partner and head of global political strategy at Avonhurst. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by Tomorrow and, of course, Open Exchange because they manage virtual meetings that matter. Carter, welcome back to Market Call. How are you doing, buddy? It's all good. Lots of moving parts today. Keeps us all on our toes. Lots of moving parts. Hey, listen, you know, I am a very fortunate re- recipient of worth charting uh, emails here, and I got a lot this week. You've been kind of looking at a lot of different things moving around here, and it really feels like, you know, while some parts of the stock market felt like they were trying to find their footing, it was really the bond market that we always knew might be the foil a little bit for those kind of uninterrupted gains that we saw for the better part of 2020. Now, January was a bit manic. Um, and again, I think earnings season were probably more than 60 some percent um, in the S&P 500 in the rearview mirror. And, you know, it was really a tale of, I think, two markets, if you will. A handful of names did very well. And we're going to talk on those. But those were the ones that the kind of uh, the biggest names in the market. And then there's a lot of other stuff where it was like, shoot first, ask questions later. I just want to get this before we get to your charts and you're going to chart treasury yields here. Look at this five year chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield plotted versus the S&P 500. I know there's nothing scientific about this. I'm sure there's plenty of chart fouls here. But with the 10-year topping 2% for the first time in about two years, I just think it's worth noting that the S&P 500, the last time it was there, was about 3,300. And here we are, about 4,500. It really feels like something's got to give here, Carter. Well, that's right. If you step back and think of this, that still the cost of tenure money is very low, right? In any other era, at least since 1980, and that's a long time, right? If you could get a mortgage at five or 6%, you were thrilled. And here we are in the market, equities start to struggle when you go over two. It's a shocking sort of circumstance of how dependent things are still on the Fed. Yeah, and I guess the other part about that is why are rates going up so fast right now? Because the Fed has basically told us they want to battle inflation. Now, we just had a bunch of earnings here. and We've heard a lot of different things about a lot of different companies as they're dealing with supply chain issues and access. Um, you know, like there's a lot of demand, not a whole heck of a lot of supply. And a lot of these companies with their input costs higher have to make a decision. Are they going to eat a portion of those cost increases or pass them through to the consumer? And I just think, you know, I'm a big fan of David Rosenberg over there at Rosenberg. Rosenberg Research. He tweeted this out earlier here. Best way to cure inflation? Question mark. Recession. Yield curve getting close to inverting and making the call. Twos, tens, less than 50 basis points away and five tens within t- 10 basis points. Never mind bonds. Things are getting very interesting for the stock market. Will the bulls fight the Fed? And I think this is really interesting because it really brings us to this thing. If we fight inflation too hard, rates go up too fast, then you have an economy that's slowing and then you have this big old fashioned stagflationary environment. And you and I could probably agree that will not be good for stock market valuations. By definition, it can't be. And and that's just the issue. I mean, always and forever, the only way a market or a stock goes up is from earnings growth or multiple expansion or some combination of the two. And here and now, it's tough to see how you get a nice combination. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. All right, let's look at the fives and the tens. You brought us a bunch of charts here, and it might give us a sense. I know this might sound a little wonky. We've just spent a lot of time talking about treasury yields, but they really do seem to be the key for equity valuations near term, especially when you consider, you know, again, the S&P 500 was up nearly 26% last year. It didn't have a greater than 6% peak to trough decline. Well, January of this year fixed that. And so the question is, where do we go from here? And you think bond yields may kind of hold the key. Well, they do. Um, obviously, all dividend discount models or uh, DCF models, whatever you will, in the stock market are pegged to uh, the cost of money. It's hard to predict that, but people try. What we do know, we're going to toggle here, is this is the arithmetic scale for the five-year chart. This is the log, back and forth, arithmetic log. If you look at the log, the log implies that we have more to go. Arithmetically, we're right up against the channel. And we have the same thing for the 10-year. It's worth just looking at. If you look at the next two uh, sequence here, the 10-year yield is right there at the two level, and there's the log. And if you look at log, uh, that would imply that we get as high as 2.7. Well, if we were to get as high as 2.7, it really is, uh, by all accounts, going to be, uh, if not lights out for equities, uh, a major problem. Yeah, real quickly, though, and, and it's great to look at those charts in that way. And so if you look at it on arithmetic and you do have a breakout above that downtrend, is that less important to you from a technical standpoint than it getting to, let's say, on the log, getting to the downtrend if it were to fail there? I'm just curious how some of our viewers can think about those two comparison charts. Sure. So levels are observed. They're observed by charts. Uh, they're observed by chart people. They're observed by uh all sorts of players, algorithms. And so there is a lot of self-fulfilling where you start to move above a level just as the stock breaks out and it, it gathers momentum. So we'll move above this downtrend line on the arithmetic scale, which is about two spot one three on the 10 year, would likely set in motion uh, something much more considerable. Yeah, so let's look at some sectors or talk about some sectors that might be impacted from this kind of rate rise here. I think it's interesting to note that, you know, bank stocks, money centers in particular have done okay in this environment. The XLF, the ETF that tracks it. I know it's not a great um, indicator because Berkshire makes such, such a big part of that, but you also see a lot of these insurance companies have been doing well. You know, banks really outperformed today in an S&P that was down nearly 2%. They were down um, less than 1%. So they seem to be okay with a 10-year rising but you know going back to this kind of yield curve that's flattening it's going to be confusing for different parts of financials talk to me though because you have a chart of the xhb the etf that tracks the home builders and we know that mortgage rates have uh gone up uh, a lot of late here how are you thinking about this group right now i mean what's key here is not only have we broken trend but we're hovering sort of i would say ominously right at those well-defined intermediate lows and you have things that aren't completely dedicated to home building. While there is Toll and Lennar and others, you've also got Home Depot and Lowe's in here. And But if you look at the action, MLM, Masco, it all uh, would suggest that just as we're seeing insurance stocks make new highs, that these are likely to continue to make new intermediate lows. Yeah, that's a bad break of that uptrend that's been in place. I will tell you this, you just mentioned Home Depot, and they're going to report um, on the 22nd of this month. And I actually think that that's going to be a really important report. The stock is down about 15%. It's kind of re, uh, it's it's kind of given back the entire move that it had from its breakout in the fall. And I will tell you with tech, for the most part, in the rearview mirror as it relates to earnings, I mean, some of the consumer data has not been great of, of late, you know. And so I think Home Depot uh, and Target and Walmart, when we get to some of those big 
big box guys is going to be really important here. Well, I, definitely, I think with mortgage rates and the supply demand dynamics in the housing market, I think that's going to be a really interesting tell. I'll just say this. On a day like today in the stock market where you saw the NASDAQ down more than 2%, the S&P 500, like I said, down about 2%. I mean, that knee-jerk reaction from the rate move um, is kind of telling. And, you know, we've been talking for years, it feels like. Remember the taper tantrum? Remember the taper tantrum? That was all the way back in 2013 and 2014. And then we remember the palpitations that the market had in late 2018 when, uh, you know, I think Fed funds, you know, was probably as highest since the global financial crisis in the end. And we also saw the 10-year U.S. Treasury above 10%, and the stock market went down 20% in a straight line over two months. What do you think the downside risk here is the S&P 500 if we were to see rates go to that 2.7 that you kind of identified on the log chart of the 10-year yield? Well, uh, if one has it in their mind's eye, the S&P is a, uh, is a perfect from the 09 low, 45 degree angle on a log scale. And we have failed at the upper band a move to the middle of the channel it's been in effect for now 10 plus years is an 18 percent peak to trough decline we know we were down 12 at one point a week or so ago and the bottom of the channel is down as much as 30. i think one has to have that uh, on their cork board if you will uh, as, a, as a reasonable uh, event uh, looking out certainly if rates were to go into the mid twos yeah. So one thing that's really kind of caught my eye this past week is that, you know, we had these mega cap tech earnings in Microsoft, Apple and Alphabet, and they really kind of put a little bit of a floor in the market that was looking to stabilize after a very volatile period in January. One of the things that really struck me, man, is that Google, you know, Alphabet gapped up on better than expected earnings and guidance, made a new brief. Uh, intraday all-time high, which was pretty shocking to me that any stock in the in the technology sector could have done that while we were in the throes of this sell-off here. But it's filled in that entire gap. And I'll just tell you this, man, it better hold right here because if it doesn't, I really feel like it could take down Microsoft and Apple with it as people are looking to sell things that have held up relatively well of late. I'm just curious how you think of this gap fill by Alphabet after very good news. Well, I mean, consider a few things. First of all, its performance today down 2.1%, handily beating Apple down 2.4, and Microsoft down 2.8. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the, the whole one, two, three sequence, right? You have uh, a, basically a 20% sell-off, uh, and then a, a ricochet that gets you right back to the high, news-related, albeit, uh, and then you've given back exactly half of that move. And what, what is important is that the move is on very heavy volume, and the give back is on very light. Uh, my hunch is that it holds, uh, but uh, we shall see. Yeah, it holds in a market that probably finds its footing and then maybe with the S&P trying to, I'm just saying that for whatever reason, let's just say the market or investors are too concerned with the pace of rate heights and that's going to abate a little bit, then Alphabet will be one of the first names to go back and make new highs. That's just the way I would see it also. But I will tell you this, after we saw that volatility over the last couple of weeks in a name like Amazon, where it fell off a cliff at like 3,200 and went down to 2,750, right? And then it ricocheted, as you said, right back. Well, right now it's 
contending with that 3200 level that was support for the better part of last year i'm just worried that we're about to see you know microsoft apple google amazon these ones take another dip it's going to take the market with it another thing that's kind of helping inform that thought process is look what happened with disney today the stock had been down a whole heck of a lot over the last few months it's down about 25 percent from its all-time highs made last year it was down over the last couple weeks in sympathy with that very poor netflix subscriber number a lot of people were extrapolating that out to disney plus i know you don't care about the funny metals but look at that gap it was trading up about you know eight or nine percent in the post market i think it was a sigh of relief but it gave a lot of that back so again we saw uber did the same thing today it was up seven eight percent in the aftermarket i think it closed down more than five percent twilio a very hard hit name a name that was down more than 50 percent from last year's highs gapped up about 15 percent or was trading up gave a lot of that back what do you make of that sort of action after earnings events so uh, there at the end of the day every day has to be characterized this is interesting right it's bearish or bullish it has to go in one side of the ledger now as i learned it higher high higher low higher close bullish day so disney in principle is bullish right uh, but what you're driving at and i think it's important is the slippage intraday and and that is analogous to a great gymnast that does a great feat and then wobbles on the landing you take get, get points taken off for that so the stocks that you mentioned they couldn't stick their landing meaning they were strong at the open but the buyers couldn't hold it and sellers came in that's in principle unhappy intraday price action yeah, well, let's chart of Disney. Yeah, let's look at it. And one of the reasons I just want to say real quickly, Carter, is like you know, you and I have been in the business a long time. Disney's one of those names that, in in you know, you buy it when it's down, you buy it when it's up, you're holding it for the kids or the grandkids, that sort of thing. And we get a lot of questions about this name, and they're exposed to a lot of different parts of the market right now. So it's one of the reasons why I just think the volatility that's kicked up in the name over the last year and a half or so since this Disney Plus has been a big important part of the story, it's also lent itself to more volatility volatility a la the Netflix that we've talked about. So I'm just curious, you have this chart, speak to me, man. So it's a three-year chart and what we know, a couple of things that are sort of uh, not debatable, there's a lot of gaps. So uh, Disney's earnings have been for the most part unanalyzable, uh, which is to say whatever they're saying quarter after quarter is a big disappointment or a big beat above a consensus figure on Wall Street. And what we also know though, is that today's move remarkably kind of leaves it right at the midpoint of the past three years. And so this for me is what a pair of twos is, right? You bet when the hand is big. Um, and when you have a pair of twos, that's not three of a kind. That's not a full house. That's not a straight. That's actually only one up from five random cards. And when you have five random cards, you fold, right? So I think there's no big bet here uh, to be short or long. Uh, and it's just a, a high volatility gets you nowhere kind of situation. Yeah, that's certainly been the case for the last couple of years here. Um, and I love the idea that it is trading very near the midpoint of that two-year range. Um, all right, let's talk about semiconductors, chips. You know, we um, saw great outperformance last year within technology in this space here. And look at that. We throw up the performance today in some of the biggest names. And you see Micron sticks out like a sore thumb. It actually closed up more than 3% today. The news that uh, flash memory maker Western Digital, two of their factories in Japan, went offline. So Micron, again, 
again, investors rush to that because they think there's going to be um, greater capacity over there. What's your take on Micron here? It was underperforming much of the semi space last year and it picked up towards the end of the year. I'm just curious how you see this stock um, right now, how it sets up in a space that, you know, it's kind of having fits and starts. Some of the big leads last year, um, NVIDIA we're going to talk about in a second, AMD, they're down a whole heck of a lot from the recent highs. Yeah. Well, one thing just to consider before we look at the charts is that if you look at every single stock in the S&P 500 technology sector, all of them, they were all down except for two, Micron being one of them, the other is Hewlett Packard, but Micron leading the pack today. Uh, the level is precise, the uptrend's precise, you can see it on this daily chart. But here's what's really important, this 97 plus minus level. I want to look at some longer term charts and show you how much authority there is at this level. So not only is it the day-to-day breakout potential, but if you look at the next chart, and then you look at the next chart, this shows uh, where we are. We are just now back to its dot-com peak registered in July of 2000. Um, the more authority the level has, the more authoritative the resolution. So this level has authority for 22 years. Is Micron worth more or less than it was then? Or said differently, is it cheaper now and more expensive then? Yes, I think it breaks out. All right, I'm going to answer your question. It's worth a lot more now. So, you know, as far as playing for a breakout, to me, you know, after such two strong days, um, you know, you probably have to build maybe a little back and fill. Is that how you'd kind of play this sort of thing? Because it's going to take a little time to establish a new range above that or kind of kind of build up ahead of steam. Wouldn't you think so or no? Or you just play for the straight uh, breakout? A little bit. But if you look at that longer chart that's here, we got to this high yeah. about six months ago. Right? Yeah. And we backed away. And that's a good setup. Hit the trend line. Now we reapproach. On the reapproach, you typically don't have to back and fill that much. Yeah. So, so one of the big leaders last uh, year in the space was obviously Nvidia. I think that thing got to nearly eight hundred billion dollars in market cap, which was truly astounding when you think about this company's um, history over the last twenty years. When you go back to Micron in the highs in two thousand, Nvidia was just a little bit of a blip here. This chart's pretty fascinating. It broke out in the fall, Carter, and you saw what it did. It gained a couple hundred billion dollars in market cap just like that. Well, then it spent the next few months giving it back here. It's had a really sharp bounce off of the January lows, I think up nearly 25%, but still down about 25% from those highs a few months ago here. This one seems like it's hanging on a little bit. And you know, this one, and I know you don't probably care that much about it. It's got a little valuation challenge, in my opinion. Um, So, you know, this is one where at a multiple to sales, given the market cap that it is, it seems a little bit disconnected from the fundamentals here. Yeah. um, And Yet, as we know, right, valuation is a tough timing tool. It's probably expensive price to sales three months ago, six months ago, nine months ago. Uh, but as it relates to the chart, it has been a pretty good ricochet. And my hunch is to be biased here to the long side. Okay, fair enough, man. Well, listen, thank you for filling in for Guy here today. Um, it was a pleasure doing this with you this week. You and I and Guy will be back with Market Call on Monday at 5 p.m. Again, a special time at 5 p.m. We're doing this because CNBC's Fast Money, a show that Carter, Guy, and I do, um, is dark because of the Olympics. So we're having a great opportunity to speak at a time where we're used to talking. So, Carter, thanks a lot, man. Have a great long weekend. You bet. All right, man. Absolutely. All right, now. Let's switch gears a little bit. This is going to be a really fun conversation. Guy and I had the pleasure of speaking um, to Tina Fordham a couple weeks ago, and we were kind of outlining some of the geopolitical risks that she sees. Um, Tina is a partner and the head of global political strategy at Avonhurst. Tina, how are you? Thanks for rejoining us here at Market Call. 
It is great to be back with you and things are just getting more exciting by the minute. Yeah, no, the timing of our conversation last month was really good because I, I think what you had kind of indicated to Guy and myself that a lot of these geopolitical situations were mounting for the better part of 2021. But for whatever reason, and I know you talked to a lot of investors, you know, people had them in the back of their mind, but they really felt like some of these things were 2022 sorts of things. Well, here we are at the Olympics. And I know that you and I were just chatting before. And while it might appear that some of the stuff's on the back burner because people are focused on, you know, this global unity and this and that, whatever. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Give us a sense of like what what the read is about these world leaders and what they're speaking about and who they're aligning with and what's likely to happen when we get out of the Olympics. Well, um, the the Olympics are always uh, popular with uh, with leaders and hosts. It's a great time to, to highlight uh, countries you know, prowess and profile and, and pomp and circumstance. It's also a really good time uh, to, you know, to, to do things while the world is, uh, is otherwise focused. Certainly investors have been focused on the Fed rate hikes uh, since we first spoke in, in January. That has really taken off as a concern, inflation and everything else. So how important is it to focus on uh, what's happening on the sideline of the Olympics? Well, I think today's news um, that it, it looks as though all of Ukraine's ports are being blocked by Russia during the course of these scheduled exercises um, really puts into focus when, when markets are looking elsewhere, um, the, the, you know, the world continues to, to move on. Uh, Putin and uh, President Xi met during the Olympics uh, and sent out a, a memorandum about cooperation. Now that sounds nice and, and brotherly, but I, you know, I, I think we could talk about uh, how this um, agreement could really alter the strategic calculus uh, and um, force us to be looking closely at a lot more risks than we're used to. Yeah, and so from your standpoint, when you think about financial markets and you think about the disruption that we've already seen um, in the global economy and supply chains and, and some of the inflationary pressures that we're seeing, would a dust up in Ukraine with Russia or something going on with China and Taiwan, in your mind, does it just further exasperate a lot of these problems that we're really hoping to have in the rearview mirror of this pandemic? Well, the pandemic kind of put the, the, you know, the international system, as we call it, into a deep freeze, right? All world leaders were focused on managing the pandemic. One of the things I wrote about it at the time was that it is a great uh, moment for geopolitical opportunism um, because, you know, Putin or, or others, I think, rightly make the calculation that um, nobody wants a conflict. Uh, and so, therefore, um, you know, changing the, the facts on the ground um, uh, may go unpunished. And the sanctions that are being discussed at the moment don't seem to be enough. Since we spoke a few weeks ago, we've gone from 100,000 tr Russian troops uh, on the Russian side of, of Ukraine's border to 170. Um, and I'm looking at headlines right now that talk about uh, it looks like it's um, a, a major invasion. I still think Putin might be able to to de-escalate and uh, claim that he's he's achieved some some victories, um, but this is serious and it's serious. You know, let's talk about the main transmission mechanism. It would be energy prices, and it's important for European energy security, uh, in particular during a time when we're already worried about inflation. 
would be bad for uh, European leaders looking to be reelected, like Emmanuel Macron. But I think the most important thing, um, Dan, is that it would give a signal to China on Taiwan uh, if if such a, a move to you know to take a bite of further territory goes uh, with modest um, modest punishment from the international community. Tina, do you think there's a chance that, that you could see something, a dust up in Ukraine and a dust up in, in something as it relates to China and Taiwan at the same exact time? And is that something that would make sense? These guys are they're, they're in bed together now and they made that very clear at the opening ceremonies right, of, of the Olympics. Is that the best way to kind of achieve the divide and conquer a little bit? Well, I'm going to, you know, calibrate my response because a, a simultaneous move by both Russia and China with regards to, you know, changing territorial integrity um, would be unprecedented since the end of, of World War II. Uh, but I think based on recent behavior, we're not going to see something that dramatic and it wouldn't be simultaneous, right? But if it happened even within the same month, um, that's going to affect the Fed's trajectory, for example. That's going to uh, affect the inflation outlook. Um, and uh, if, if it's allowed to, to happen, as some, you know, some investors I talk to tell me, why do we keep provoking Russia with this eastward NATO expansion? Why don't we let Russia and China kind of run things in their neighborhood? Uh, you know, that that is an argument that certainly Putin likes to use. And you've even heard some U.S. congressmen talk about uh, but it would represent a complete reversal of U.S. foreign security policy, you know, going back over 100 years. So we're not, you know, we're not used to it. We're not ready for it. Um, and my argument has been that geopolitical risks that might have been kind of soaked up by by QE, by liquidity from central banks in the last several years, um, could be much more disruptive than we're used to. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think it's kind of going to be hard for investors to kind of get their heads around this. Let's just say there was some sort of invasion, a big invasion of Ukraine, and you'd start to think, and we haven't even talked about Iran, and we want to talk about Iran, um, because I know that's an area of focus with you. But would the Fed or central banks um, in the West, would they know what to do? Because right now, they're battling inflation. And if, if one of the things, one of the knock-on effects would be higher commodity prices, well, then you would continue, right, to raise rates to kind of help curtail that. But at the same moment, our playbook has always been when you have these sorts of dust ups, you go ease, right? You ease um, monetary policy. So we could be we could find ourselves in a weird little conundrum. Well, exactly right. I mean, in the last several years, when I've, I've spoken to investors about geopolitical risks, you know, the response is great, lower for longer. <laughs> you know, um, that's the way uh, our people tend to, to see the world. I think the question is for something quite serious, uh, you know, is there enough firepower in the world's central banks um, to deal with this? Because we know that uh, higher fuel prices uh, do um, transmit uh, regional risks to systemic. So an awful lot of investors talk about something like Ukraine and the possibility of a regional conflict you know, that's a pity, but it doesn't really affect my portfolio. Well, that would really change through the gas price channel. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and the other thing is, I mean, you know, we had this trade war before the pandemic and we know how fragile supply chains are right now here. And so um, there's little doubt, I think, in anyone's minds that that would cause, um, you know, just a further 
prolonging of this period. I mean, one of the things in, in, that I'm taking away right now, again, from just listening to multinationals earnings calls is the lack of visibility they have. And you know, as far as investors are concerned, and one of the reasons why I think your angle on geopolitics is really important because you're, I think you, you're probably dumbfounded by how many massive investors pay so little attention to these sorts of geopolitical events. So what are some of the things that you think that investors that think globally should be focused on. We just talked Ukraine, we just talked China and Taiwan. Are there other hot spots that you think people should be focused on? Well, as I said, it's a great moment for geopolitical opportunism. Most of these moves are going to be sub-threshold in military parlance. So that means not enough to, to trigger a massive military response. Um, but if enough of them happen, it becomes very disruptive. One of the things Russia's talking about doing uh, is sending troops to Venezuela and Cuba. For those of us who remember the, the Bay of Pigs and, and that whole notion, because their argument is um, if the U.S. is saying no regional hegemons and wants to stop us from, from helping our friends uh, in Cuba or, or Venezuela when, when they need us, that would be a further fragmentation of the world order. That would mean more sanctions, um, plus something that we tend to forget, counter sanctions. Russia can pass sanctions against our institutions. Now the, the, the impact won't be huge, but it's almost like you know, the sort of unleashing um, a sanctions virus into the, the global system uh, is something that I, I think most of us aren't prepared uh, for in this environment. And a trade war um, is probably much worse for markets, in fact, than, than a military uh, escalation. And that's the more, more likely response. Well. This was enlightening. And, uh, you know, we had the benefit of talking to you last month where you really laid this all out here. We'll tweet out um, that episode where you hit all the hot spots here. We really appreciate your insight right now. Um, and we definitely have to have you back on Market Call to kind of talk about some of these things um, as they're developing. So Tina Fordham, thank you very much. Tina is a partner at Avonhurst. You can follow her on Twitter and she's a great follow at Tina Fordham one. Thanks, Tina, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, great. All right, well, listen, we got to give a shout out to our presenting sponsors. You know who they are. They're FactSet. They've been with us uh, this whole week here at five o'clock. So we really want to thank um, FactSet. And of course, Open Exchange, our very good friends who power this, who make this possible. And they're also sponsors. Um, so they really got their act together and got Guy and Carter and me and Tina up at five o'clock this week. So that was a lot of fun. We're going to be back at five o'clock on Monday, and we're gonna do market call with Carter. We're gonna take a look at a lot of the charts that um, he will have in his note that morning from Worth Charting. So thanks very much for being with us all week at five o'clock. I'm Dan Nathan. I'll be back with Guy Adami and Carter Worth on Monday. Have a great Super Bowl weekend. Thanks a lot. <laughs>